Welcome to another edition of the Columbia University Sports Podcast, The Cusp Show, where we talk about the business of sports and entertainment and media with various and sundry guests. I'm Joe Favorito, co-host, along with another Tom, Tom Cerny, setting in for Tom Richardson this week. Tom, welcome aboard. Thank you. Thank you. It's fun being on this side of the computer. So, <laughs> so Tom, it's um, football season. Yep. Uh, Columbia in the last couple of years has undergone quite a renaissance in football, but there was a renaissance in football the last time our guest was playing. Uh, and we're going to talk today with a Columbia alum, former NFLer, broadcaster now for Fox, now an author of Never Shut Up, um, his kind of own unique look at life, but also a national typing champion. <laughs> That's right. Um, That's right. So Marcellus Wiley, welcome. Oh, thank you guys so much. I, I'm glad you saved my best accolade for last. So, uh, that one always sticks out. And you have to be known for something. <laughs> yeah, like, right? Like last year we were at the Sloan MIT conference and I come up to this guy and he said, I said, what do you do? You never know what they're going to say. And he goes, I'm the sports haiku guy. Mm. So I'll never forget that I met the sports haiku guy and now I've met a national typing champion. So, <laughs> Amazing. So. so, Marcellus, for those people who may not know, and there are probably a good amount of people who are listening who may not know, um, Tell us a little bit about your journey from L.A., how you got to Columbia, why you got to Columbia, uh, and then we'll talk a little bit about the NFL and your, your career after that. Yeah, I'm from Compton, California, born and raised there till about the age of five, then moved to uh, the South Central Los Angeles. Uh, uh, I guess in my family's scope, uh, my grandmother in the 50s moved from Watts to Compton for a better life. Wow. So... My mother goes to Compton High School. She is a straight-A student. She has two kids, 17 and 19 years young, uh, decides to turn all her focus inward to her family, raise us, and not really pursue her dreams. I'm born. She realizes, okay, I don't want my son being raised in Compton. So uh, our, our greener pasture is in south-central Los Angeles, wow. just to give you perspective. Mm-hmm. And so I'm a young kid growing up in uh, the the gang culture of the 80s and uh, dealing with Reaganomics and the impact on the urban community, uh, lots of drugs, lots of adversity, lots of poverty, um, worst of all, low ambition. Uh, mm-hmm. A lot of people who are living lives that they didn't desire, a lot of jobs, no careers, um, people who weren't living out their dreams, and you could see their spirits being dimmed in the process. So I'm just a young kid, seven, eight years old, and quickly I realized I'm good at two things, and two things only. Uh, <laughs> uh, I'm pretty pretty good in class, uh, ambitious in class, like want to sit in the front row, want to raise my hand, have another question for the teacher, spelling bee, academic decathlon, all that stuff. And I was fast, like literally fast, like I was eight years old, beating nine, 10, 11, 12, 13 year olds. I had a little problem. And so quickly, um, that became my balancing act. Uh, I was a kid that was uh, told by one of my childhood friends, man, you should play football. You're so fast, and you don't even care if you get hit. Play football. And I started playing Pop Warner football, age eight to 14. Uh, And I say this humbly 
I probably was one of the top five running backs in the nation at Pop Warner level, if wow. there's a thing. Mm-hmm. And there wasn't a thing back then. And there's a thing now. That's there's a right, thing now, right. and I'm so mad. because God. Oh, <laughs> with the film, I have a highlight tape that is deep in, in the archives, but it's, it's insane. So, anyway, I'm getting recruited to go to high schools. I'm that kid. And uh, I'm still prioritizing my academics. And then I get to high school, freshman year, top recruit as a running back. And I get Osgood Slaughters in my knees. Uh, mm. So people don't know that. That is a, a debilitating knee issue, soreness. And it's also precursor for a growth spurt. So you're going to be bigger, but you got to go through this awkward process. All of a sudden, I'm not a running back that's top flight anymore. I'm more of this offensive lineman, mm. defensive lineman, interior trenches player. And I went through a dark time trying to figure out what were my uh, athletic pursuits and what were going to be my realizations. And you were still enjoying academics at that point as well? Yeah, it's weird. Like, I think that full circle came into play for my Columbia decision because I still did well in, in school. I didn't let the, uh, that depression get to me. But athletically, it was humbling, and um, it was a very trying times. And that's in part why I switched high schools my junior year um, I wanted to go to a place that had uh, a better curriculum and gave me a better chance of pursuing a, a academic school more than the football factory. Senior year, look up. I'm getting recruited by some big schools, UCLA, Cal, Arizona State, Pac-10 at the time. And um, uh, then there was one school that didn't make any sense in terms of recruitment, but it was Columbia University. Had a coach on my staff. Uh, my high school senior team, and he's like, don't go there. I went there. I was like, really? And I was like, why are you telling me not to go to the school you went to? He's like, amazing school, amazing place, worst football team ever. And I was like, ever? And then I looked it up. It's pretty much true at it, that point. It was so. a ever. <laughs> it was an 0-44. I was like, what? I was like, someone went there as a freshman and graduated as a senior, then went one game. He's like, yep. And so, Who was that, by the way? God, I wish I was that guy. I've been hitting the head a lot. Uh, but I, I forget <laughs> Coach's name. Um, but the, the funniest thing is I get on my recruiting trip, and that moment was what, what – that moment connected with what Ray Tellier told me. Don't want to fast forward too much, but uh, that was my road to getting to Columbia. It was taking the big trips. Mm-hmm. Coming back, tell all my friends, hey, man, I went to this school, this school, this school. Oh, man, go there. It's going to be crazy. All the parties, Rose Bowl. Oh, I can't wait. You're going to wear the sweatsuit, the empty backpack, the gloves, you know. And then I told them about Columbia. Where's Columbia? Is that in South America? <laughs> Dummies. <laughs> no. And so then I flip and I tell my teachers, the elders, the counselors, all the big schools, they're like, impressive, Marcel. You've been, you've been working very hard. You're big now. You're strong. You're fast. Then I told him, Columbia. Oh, stop. Stop right now. You have to go to Columbia. Don't even think about it. Don't even think twice. And they told me some things that, that really came true, how it would pay dividends for my entire lifetime, not just in my playing career. So you get to Columbia, and Ray Tellier mm. really was the first person to turn around, you know, the culture at Columbia from a football perspective. But yeah. how how do you balance um, when you first got there? I'm sure it was a pretty interesting academic-athletic balance to try and keep both sides. What were some of those original experiences and the lessons that you learned from Ray playing 
four years at Columbia. Yeah, I, I have to thank Ray Taylor for bringing proper perspective uh, to my student athlete experience and, and setting the table. Uh, uh, how, he, how he was able to acquire um, myself and other talents, because we changed the program in part because uh, it was a group collective effort of, of good players that could have went to bigger schools for football reasons and decided to go to Columbia. He sits there, we're at the top of the Empire State Building, and it's mm. our recruiting trip. And the backdrop is New York and the skyline, and we're like, wow, this is amazing. So he already has us if he can just close the deal. And we're like, this is beautiful. And he says, I know you guys have other opportunities, and this is like the select group. And he's like, but would you rather go somewhere and carry the torch or go somewhere and light the torch? I said, Ray T, <laughs> you're talking my language. So uh, that's what sold me on Columbia. And once uh, once I committed to Columbia, there was no looking back. Uh, I remember coming here, and the first day I meet Jackie Blackett, who's now my godmother, uh, so dear to my heart. But day one, and we're talking about classes, and she's like, what do you want to be? And I was like, aerospace engineer. <laughs> yeah, that laugh. <laughs> I was like, aerospace engineer. And I mean, I was great in math and science at the high school level, but Columbia is a little different. Let's just say that. So um, she's like, okay. And, and she's filling out the, the class schedule with me. And she's like, you're sure? And I was like, yeah. And then uh, <laughs> she's like, I'll see you in about two days. And she knew I was coming back. Like, what the hell? And so I went through that process. Uh, killer math course. Uh, I was like, no, this is not for me. Um, it was academic shock. It was uh, it was social shock. Uh, I, I'm not used to a, a pedestrian city. Everyone's in your face. Everyone's in your space. Everyone's like sharing your energy. I was like, whoa, back up. You know, I'm from a place where if you see 10 guys on a the corner, there is trouble. Right. But in New York, that means, hey, man. That's Tuesday. Yeah, right. Yeah, hey, the bodega got a sale. Like, right. you know what I mean? Like, whatever. <laughs> so um, I just was caught off guard by a lot of different elements of the city and the, the mannerisms. But academically, to see people as competitive about a class, about a test, about a, a quiz, a finals, uh, versus – I saw only that competition and spirit on a football field growing up. Uh, that really opened up my eyes to a grander picture. Yeah, so just speaking of that and all the, you know, the energy you put forth towards your academics, how were you able to just flip the switch when it came time to go to football? Yeah, I mean, I had my struggles. Look, I had to sit out a year because I wasn't taking enough courses. Now, they told me Marcel's 13 is not enough, 15 and a half. And I was like, well, while I'm figuring it out, let me just figure it out. And this is, it, I was almost in a point where I was going to transfer because then if you don't keep pace, that fifth year at Columbia, because we don't get scholarships, mm -hmm. you have to pay for it. Right. And they said, that's a 40-some thousand dollar bill. And I was like, whoa, wait a minute, I don't have 40-some thousand. And that was before graduate transfers. Exactly. So yeah. I'm sitting there with that as a reality, and I'm like, there's no way. And if I were to chose any of the other schools, that fifth year is, is already paid for. So uh, my sacrifice was challenged. Uh, and, and I had to make sure that I wanted to be a, a Columbia graduate. But Jackie Blackett and others put together a plan and, more importantly, uh, motivated me to, to stick to what I, I started. And that, play, that played a, a huge part. But, you know, at Columbia, uh, 
the attrition rate was horrible, especially my freshman year. Like guys would get in, they would be on the team. We are have 120 guys at camp. You look up, second week of of the schedule, we're down to 80, 70. Guys were just dropping like flies. From the team or from the school? From the team. Right. And they were just students. They were like, it's it's right. too hard to balance. Right. And I understood that that that, that workload, and it was intense. Um, but I just started to open up, and I started to really cherry pick, uh, I guess, attributes from other people that, that I can use and kind of put in my tool belt. So uh, I never heard of Cliff Notes in my life. Mm-hmm. I was like, what the hell is a Cliff Note? And they were like, oh, you read the whole book? I was like, yeah. They were like, mm. <laughs> <laughs> Are you mother? And these kids, I, I, didn't have a, I didn't have a computer. I didn't have spell check and word, all that. I had a, now it's Grammarly, by the way. Grammarly right. is the Grammarly. Track. Yes, so, I had none of that. So I'm just writing these papers. I'm getting like A and content, like C minus and structure and stuff. I was like, what? And then I look at my friend and he's like, why are you writing your paper like manually? Like, want to get some assistance? So uh, it was just a process, you know. Mm-hmm. I was first generation college wow. in a class with third generation Columbia, right. you know, and it was just a whole different animal, but. Hey, man, we figured it out together as a collective. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the people that you crossed on campus, now that you look back and say, man, that was so-and-so, some of your classmates, um, obviously you've had a pretty unique career on your own. Are there some people that when you think back, you're like, man, that person influenced me, but I can't believe they did what they did. And the reason why I ask is a couple weeks ago we did a, um, a, a program in, in the J School uh, for strategic communications. And we walked into Pulitzer Hall. That's where it was. And I walked in, and some kid was coming in for the first time. He goes, oh, you mean this is the guy who the prize is named after? Uh-huh. So, yeah. So, you know, people kind of realize who Joseph Pulitzer is at that point. But were there some classmates of yours that stand out and you say, man, I can't believe that guy, that girl has gone on to do some other things? Yeah, it's amazing. Um, you know, I could start with one of my closest friends, Rory Wilfork, who is now uh, head of a financial firm with Mark Wahlberg. I was like, what? Mm. That came from nowhere. <laughs> and I was like, respect. But, you know, he's a guy who uh, left Columbia, went to Arizona Cardinals uh, training camp, got released, last cut. I'm sitting on the phone with him. I was like, keep going, man. That's how the process is. You just, you're right there. You're, you're right there on that, that, that line. You're a tweener. You, you can make it. He just goes to Goldman, turns that into this. So that's amazing. Um, it, it, what's crazy about Columbia is how many successful classmates you have. And Courtney Carter Ream and and their investors in so many things. They had a liquor company. I was like, who sells a liquor company from Columbia? But these guys did. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, the older alums, former Bob Klingesmith, who ran Paramount Pictures, who was Bill one Campbell, of, Bill Campbell, yep. who uh, Ben Horowitz, like mm-hmm. people. And it's crazy because our family is so tight knit um, compared to other universities, like. It's amazing like a Billy Campbell will reach out to me because he's right. like, you're Marcel Swati went to my school. You're forever part of my family. Ben Horowitz, same way. I'm like, do you know how many people I know that if I tell them I know you are never going to leave me alone because I know you? <laughs> and that's what I love about the Columbia community. And it still pays dividends. Uh, just yesterday, I'm on Cheddar um, talking at New York Stock Exchange and 
and, and Nora Ali, Harvard graduate. So all of a sudden now we feel closer. And she has a co-host, but we're that co-host is not in our conversation. Went to Villanova. That's your fault. Yeah, yeah Mr. Fordham. That's so right, exactly. <laughs> so it's just funny. Like safety school. Safety, right. safety school. We get it. We get it. It's just amazing how that community uh, always respects each other, and you get so much respect from being a part of it. And just for those people who don't know, Bill Campbell, the late Bill Campbell, big supporter of uh, Columbia football, coached at Columbia, was the whisperer to Steve Jobs. I mean, that yes. was he. Steve Jobs credits Bill Campbell with getting Apple, you know, getting it to where it is. And, and you know, when you go to the, the football game at Columbia and you see the Campbell Athletic Complex, I don't know if people realize the impact that Bill Campbell had on the world, not yeah. only only on Columbia. So yeah. um, one question before we kind of transition on to the other things and talk about the book. Mm-hmm. When did you know, did you ever have a feeling that you were going to be able to play in the NFL? How did that come about? Yeah, it's weird. Like, there were moments – when I, I had dreams of being in the NFL, and then reality would smack me. And it would smack me so hard, it would almost tell me, don't dream that again. So, look, when you're young and you're destroying your pop water fields and there are adults walking up to you at age 11, pointing at you with their little kid and said, Johnny, you stop him, we win today. And I'm like, oh. So I started, my head started getting bigger because everyone was like, you're the man. And... My team didn't lose until our fourth year. Like, it was insanity. And then high school, I never thought about it. Uh, My dad always told me that a marathon is Mm 26.2 until you take the first step. Then it's not. And so I realized because I was not in the place where I should be dreaming about the NFL, just take the next step. And I would just work out, and I was getting bigger, faster, stronger. But compared to elite athletes, I wasn't gaining ground on those guys. I wasn't on their radar. But – in terms of my climb and, and, and my success, uh, it, it started to improve to a point I started getting confidence and a work ethic that was going to be second to none. Um, college, I didn't think about it freshman year. I won MVP as a running back. Yay. Uh, that was one of my last years playing running back. Still didn't think about it. Sophomore year, didn't think about it. Junior year was the first time because I took my year off uh, junior year took my year off and then I started to really work out and since I was off I had so many friends at big schools mm-hmm. and they would tell me they're like man you're better than our DN and I was like no I'm not I watch him he's good he knows what he's doing he's amazing whoever it could have been at the time but then those guys would come home and we'd work out together and I was like hey man they're like I told you you're bigger than him you're faster I'm stronger and I got caught up in the perception of TV as everyone else does. Mm-hmm. I was like, I thought the guy was an animal. Then I realized he's just a, a human being. And that was that was doing wonders to my confidence. And I returned to Columbia senior year with a laser focus and and a drive and a purpose. And that senior year we rallied. And I senior year I was on a mission to make it to the NFL because all the guys I knew who were going to make it, I felt that I was as good as. Mm-hmm. That was the only thing. It wasn't how good I was. I was like, I know who they're taking. I worked out with him. It's my turn to be with those guys in that invitation. Um, I'm working on a movie now called Creed Two. Mm. Um, Are you casting Max Kellerman again? Uh, Max Kellerman is prominently in the film. Mom, oh, so, prominently? Prominently in the Ooh, film. 
nice. That's um, my which, man. And you'll see it. And this is early October. This is mid October. It comes out around Thanksgiving, but you will see it at some point. Yes. But one of the things that comes out in the film is um, Adonis has talked to you about being in the moment and realizing what's going on around him. When you get to the NFL and you played several years, the Bills, the Chargers, mm-hmm. um, did you ever kind of take a step back while you were either on a field and realize, I'm here now and this is and looking around and say, what the hell am I doing here or how did I get here to appreciate it? Do you ever get that moment as a professional athlete? Yeah, it, 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 it's interesting. Um, once again, that, that smack, that dream versus reality and living a dream is 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 a hard one to wake up from because that is your reality. Um, but I had a moment. Uh, I grew up a huge John Elway, Eric Dickerson fan. Now, I'm a running back, so I thought I was going to be Eric Dickerson, and I couldn't throw, so I was like, I'm not going to be John Elway, but that's my guy. Did you have the goggles? you put the goggles on? Too? Oh, I had the jerry curl, yeah. at least. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't have the goggles, but certainly the curl. Um, and it made, actually, it propped John Elway up because he was untouchable. I couldn't be him. I could be Eric Dixon. So, John Elway was my number one. And I was a Denver Bronco fan growing up in L.A. All these Raider fans in my face and ear every day. I'm like, why do you like the Broncos? I was like, John Elway, damn it. And my first game ever getting drafted by the Buffalo Bills was a preseason game on the road in Denver. And it's Mile High Stadium. I heard all the talk of once you land, you can't breathe. Once you play, you're going to be in trouble. You can't make it two quarters. And I got off the plane. I said, I can breathe. I'm all right. There's air here. Right, right. It's just air, whatever. And then I did my warm-up. So next day we have our game game preparing for the game. And I'm warming up. And I'm like, oh, maybe. (laughs) This is real. Um but during warm-up, since uh, I'm not starting, I'm at the 50-yard line. You guys know how the field is. And 50 to one end zone is the Bills, 50 to the other end zone is the Broncos. And I'm at the 49, basically the 50. And my back is turned to Denver. And since I'm not starting and I'm not playing in the beginning, I don't really need to be watching this part of our practice. So I turn. And I start looking at Denver as they were warming up. And as I turned – Maybe a yard or two away from me was seven Elway. I said, man. And, I mean, I got teary-eyed, misty-eyed. I wanted to shake his hand. I wanted to autograph. I wanted to pull my poster off my bedroom wall, (laughs) say, here you go, sign it. And then I just realized. And then, smack. You got to go sack that guy if you can. And, of course, I didn't. Couldn't breathe. Um, But the point of it is there are moments like that that happen all throughout my career and through – through that process of living that dream. So that was an amazing moment for cool. me. Cool. Um, I want to, you touched on Ray Tellier. Coaches as teachers. Um, some of the coaches you had in the NFL, whether they were head coaches or assistant coaches, were there a couple that stood out to you as really good teachers? Yes. I, mean, I talked about Ray Tellier, how he gave me perspective, um, uh, student athlete, and just uh, gave me the confidence to, to really put my personality on the field. Uh, he, he enabled me to, to, to bring all my character and all my personality and challenge others. And it was amazing because uh, football is a great game of skill, but it's a greater game of will. Mm-hmm. And if you encourage the will in a player, he'll run through every single wall you present him. Um, uh, the NFL, Marv Levy, former Ivy Leaguer, uh, yep. big brain. Um, it was Deep thinker. I, deep thinker, deep right? Thinker. So yeah. I'm used to like a more emotionally charged coach. And Marv Levy's not that. He's mm-hmm. like, 
I'm going to help you guys think about this and put it in perspective. And that's going to be your fuel for this fire. And I was like, I like it, but it was different. And he was certainly a teacher. Uh, and then I go through a Wade Phillips who mm-hmm. laid back, no headset on. And everyone, when we win, they're like, oh, he's so amazing. Uh, he, he, he supports his players and he believes in them. When we lose, they're like, oh, look at him. He's not prepared. He's, he doesn't have a headset on. What is he doing on the sidelines? Wade prepared us, and he always used to say, if you don't know by Sunday, chances are you're probably not going to know. So I trust in you to go out there and do exactly what we've done. And he was a great coach and a high win percentage, so I love Wade Phillips. Then I had the nicest guy ever created in Mike Riley. Uh, He's just so cool. Uh, And he was a good coach. Uh, And that's why I'm with Junior Seau, Rodney Harrison. That was in San Diego. San Diego. And then I, I, I start running the gauntlet. Here we go. Uh, Marty Schottenheimer. Ooh. Mm. You know, he knew some football, and he was passionate. Marty would cry every Wednesday and every Sunday. We were <laughs> like, oh, we got to pick a day, Marty. You can't cry every time we talk about football. He loved football. He loved us. And then I got Bill Parcells, and I didn't know how many, how many Jedi mind tricks he could play, but way more than I could count. And he was so good at just motivating you and, and giving you perspective. Uh, finish off my career, uh, Jack Del Rio, mm-hmm. who was just a former player, players coach who understood it all. That was in Jacksonville? That was in Jacksonville. Were you there when he, with the axe? I was not there. Oh. That was the year before. So people don't know the story. They had There was an axe <laughs> with a piece of wood in the locker room, right? And the idea was to use the axe to chop the wood. Mm-hmm. And he missed, right? And he hit his leg with the axe. Yeah, yeah. I think yeah, yeah, I think a kicker or yeah, something. yeah. Somebody, someone got axed (laughs) before I got there. Yeah, so, I mean, football is like no other sport um, in the respect of it's it's this ultimate team game. So many different lanes and elements that have to get on one accord. Uh, And to not be able to walk at times but be able to run, People don't understand what that means, but that's what football is. It's like there are moments where I literally couldn't get in the stadium, mm-hmm. but I had to perform while I was in there. And football will, will test your limits and make you redefine them every time. Cool. Um, a little bit about the entrepreneur side because I want to transition into uh, – first question is I, I was at a conversation once with, of all people, Isaiah Thomas when I worked with the Knicks and Sean Landetta when he was trying to end his career. Mm. And Isaiah's advice, Sean asked him and he said, when is it time? And he said, it's time. Isaiah told me, when they rip the jersey off you, then it's time. Hey, right. Did you know when it was time to, to get out? And then how did you transition into this next phase of entrepreneurship, broadcasting, um, ESPN, now Fox, author? When did you know and how did you yeah. know? Yeah, that was a basketball response, mm-hmm. or that was a baseball response. Right. That's not a football response because it hurts when you're not good. <laughs> like it hurts the ego and mm. it hurts the body. Mm. Um, so football players, we usually get out before they get us out because mm. if they have to get us out, it might be on a stretcher. I mean, uh-huh. it's just that serious out there. Um, when did I know? Uh, I never was able to fully express my athletic abilities in the pros. I, I was hurt every year of my prime and even the years where I was good or great like Mm -hmm. the Pro Bowl all pro all those good years top 50 players broke foot back surgery Mm -hmm. (laughs) shoulder surgery abdominal like I never had a clean bill of health in my entire playing career so that made me think 
this universe has something bigger in store for me because I couldn't fully express myself as a football player. Um, when did I know? Uh, the first sign was Bill Parcells. He told me first. I, I thought it, but I kept it. You know, you never admit to your failure or to your weakness because then you think that's who you are. So I was in debate of, I think I'm going down the hill. And Bill Parcells saw me pass rush one day in training camp. He said, that's all you got, Wiley? Hmm. I said, yeah. And he's like, mm. all right. And I knew what he meant, and I knew what he was seeing. And that's when I knew it was over. But then you use your gas to get up the hill to become this great player, and you use your brakes to not fall down that hill so fast. And I was using my brakes like, Arr. But uh, Dallas was the year I knew it was over, and then the rest was just like uh, – those are like pay vacations, Jacksonville, <laughs> just to just to figure it out. Um, I had a great relationship with the media, greater than probably all the other players, because I came from Columbia. I'm not used to big business football. I'm not jaded. I had teammates as rookies. Media walk in the locker room. Oh man, damn man, what the hell they want? I was like, uh, won't you let them ask a question? Then you know what they want. Like mm. just just jaded and just short and. As as the cliche goes, don't say hello when it's time to say goodbye. Mm-hmm. A lot of players in their ninth, tenth, eleventh year, all of a sudden, will say hello, hey media, right. hello, hey owner, hello, hey CEO and community. And I said hello from rookie year. So when it was time to say goodbye, they were in that long line. No matter how great they were as players, um, it was a difficult process to transition. So for me, I knew that the playing days uh, were behind me. And uh, my relationship with the media, I did one interview that snowballed into uh, where I am right now. Mm-hmm. How about um, the transition you talked about, the broadcasting side? Some of the other things you're interested in, entrepreneurship, leadership, um, giving back to the community. Yeah. Where are you with all those things and kind of as you kind of play this out, going from ESPN now to Fox? Uh, how does that all factor into where you want this all to end up? Yeah, I mean, I'm 43 now, and I'm getting a better understanding of, of my true identity essence, in part why I wrote the book Never Shut Up. Um, that title is about your essence. Uh, this world tried to tell me who I had to be and place limits on me, and I'm sure it does that to a lot of people, uh, tell them who they should be. And, and your essence should never shut up. It should just always tell the world who you think you are and dictate those terms instead of being a product of your environment. So uh, it's, a, it's a memoir of inspiration. And I've learned now, especially of late, that I'm a giver, uh, not only to my family, but to my community, to anyone out there that wants an inspirational message. Because I was a fork in the road kid. It could have went wrong fast for me. And I just want someone else who's in that same place uh, because it's, it's, there's a transparency even in my, my reality now and the success I've had that I can see and I can still feel what it looks like and feels like right on that other side of the fence. Like I'm not distant from that experience. So I'm sure a lot of people are challenged in that same situation and what to do, what decisions to make and what sacrifices to make and what perspectives to have. So I'm, I'm about giving. I'm about giving that because there was a Bob Klinger Smith. There was a Billy Campbell, as you said. Uh, there was a Jackie Blackhead, a Ray Tellier, people who did it for me. Right. 
and did it without receipt. I think that's key because uh, I've also had my experiences with people who came back with their receipts. Say, remember I took you to the park when you were 11? <laughs> and I was like, I do remember. How much was gas that day? Yeah. Um, but, you know, they, they expect so much more. But if I can encourage anyone to be the best them, uh, I think goals met. Mm-hmm. Um, let's touch before we get to our final two questions. Talk a little bit about the broadcast world and the social media world and where it is now. You're pretty active, especially on Twitter. Yeah. Um, do you enjoy that side of the business? And how do you, do you – I'm assuming you don't look at broadcasting as a job. No, it's um, not. Yeah, I just um, talk. Yeah. <laughs> Prepared speeches. <laughs> yeah. But what about the social side? I mean, has that yeah. had an impact on you? Now you look back at players who are constantly thinking about their own brand you know, did people advise you about using social to build the, the Marcellus Wiley brand as you kind of went along? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I had my last two years on that paid vacation in Jacksonville. Uh, uh, Facebook, uh, MySpace kind of introduced MySpace. to the locker room. There you go. Yeah, right? And Top tens. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh, my God, and the slow loading speed when uh-huh. someone had too much music on their page. Yeah. You're like, ah, yeah. can you hurry up? Um, I was a early adopter of... Uh, social media in the locker room and I was on it just because I was like this is fascinating and you know it start Facebook started in Ivy League so I just felt uh, in tune with it and to a teammate they were like man what the hell are you doing get all them fools in third grade man I don't want to see them why they now you got a way that they can request you and be your friend they're not my friend so why they my friend and I was like look at my page and then every player would look at my page like who's that who is she and they would just see pretty girls, and they were like, oh, yeah, let me give me a Facebook page. Yeah. So the early adopters were basically, hey, man, we, we're out there. I was single. Uh, we were out there trying to mingle. Um, then I got to ESPN, and they started to talk about brand building, and it became a necessary evil because I didn't, I didn't want the necessity of being on social media. I just wanted to kind of just hide behind the veil and come out when I wanted to. Hey, I want to meet you. Hey, I want to go here. I want this connection, and that's it. But um, it, it, it's it's a whole different animal now. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm active, but I'm I'm not active in variety. I, I I post about funny memes about sports, my kids and family, and what's going on in my world. Mm-hmm. Like that's it. I, I I'm not into the whole social commentary on mm-hmm. issues and stuff. I got, well, how many characters are you getting now? 240? Like, <laughs> I can't. Like, And it's always misconstrued. It's always taken out of context. It's, it's never full thought. Um, uh, I, I'm not in it for that. And mm. it's weird. That actually hurts you. Um, because if you don't go there with social media, it won't give you everything it can. So mm. I don't get full returns from it because I don't give it full risk. <laughs> but um, I like it. I like it a lot. It's the, it's, it's the biggest group text I have. Mm-hmm. You know, anybody that's in my world, I, boom, this is what's going on. And um, it, it's a necessary evil at times, but at times I do find myself enjoying it. Cool. So the last two questions. Um, how do you stay up to date? Who do you follow? Are there things that, that keep you informed, not just about sports, but life in general, kids? Uh, and then the last question is, so many people come up to you for advice, whether they're Columbia alums, people on the street. What do you tell young people looking to get to that next point? Yeah. Um, in terms of who I follow, um, I had a different upbringing. Like, uh, my, 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 my 
best friends were really my family. Like, and that's my mother's design in part, as I said, her protection of moving us from Compton to South Central. And I couldn't spend the night over at a friend's house, no sleepovers. And, um, if I go trick or treat and I couldn't eat any of the candy, like even for your best friend, she's like, I didn't see where they get that from. I was like, all right, mom, <laughs> like this is this almost this, this hysteria and, and this phobia and fear, but it, it really made me like self-contained and, and, and a lot of times uh, just in my close, close circle. So my friends are who I follow in our group text more than anything, even though I'm on Twitter. I rarely go to like a timeline and just start scrolling. I'm like, I mean, rarely. Like, mm-hmm. I'm like, I don't. It's just, I guess, alerts here and there, and I, I catch up with pop culture uh, um, in those respects. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I don't, I don't really have to digest much from the outside. But Twitter, world. Twitter's a great resource for you to follow. It, it is. Yeah. It's a great one. Yep. Ozark. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> catch me on some Ozark. You catch me on. Uh, uh, snowfall, power, mm-hmm. stuff like that. But uh, no, not too much about every. I, I played and lived in a world when I was impressionable in to that degree, where I didn't know what my neighbor thought about me, and mm-hmm. I liked it. Mm-hmm. You know, when they came, when I moved in the neighborhood, hey Marcellus, welcome to the neighborhood. Here's your pie. Here's your cookies. Okay, I see you when I see you. Um, that's it. And then when their cousins came to visit, hey, can you sign this ball? Cool. That's it. I didn't have to wake up or go to bed here. You suck, Wiley. Next, next mm. tweet. Oh my God! And you live right next door to me, and you live across. And then every time I and run, they don't know you, and they don't know me. Yeah. Yeah. And then the times that I actually have gotten some of those crazy tweets and ran into that person or responded to that person. Oh, I was just playing. Oh, yeah. I was just saying, I love you, man. You're the greatest. I just didn't think you would respond. So I don't play that little cat and mouse game. Um, and then the advice side. What do What do you tell people? Young people looking to get started in careers far and wide. Yeah, um, I guess the greatest advice comes in these forms. One is identity. Start with your identity. Please know who you are. Read your own manual. Uh, we all have a manual. We just don't read it. Just like when you go to the store and you buy something new, first thing you do is pop it open and play with it. Then in about six months, somebody's like, hey, man, won't you swipe right, do this, go left, and then you can have a shortcut, and then, wow, that pops up. You're like, What? But you've been playing with that phone for six months. That's a guy thing, by the way. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. Yes. So. That, read the manual of yourself, identity. Um, I think the second thing is, as my grandmother told me when I was little, uh, know who you are, know who you are, and more importantly, who you're not. That helped me. Uh, that helped me know that there was a railroad out of my circumstance and to, to, to stay on track. Uh, but my greatest advice is from Mark Twain. Uh, This one changed my life as well. Life is a competition between you and yourself. And when I heard that, think about it. Um, That's the best advice you can give someone because Mm -hmm. if I'm on top, that's a relative experience. Like that means I think I'm better than you. So do I work as hard? Am I, have I arrived? You don't want to get complacent. And if you're at the Mm -hmm. bottom, you can you can kind of create your own opponents and defeat yourself because you think that you're at the bottom. So when I heard that and through the experience of being at Columbia and it's a competition between you and yourself, I watch a Florida state game and I'll sit there and I wasn't jealous. I didn't have envy. I was like, I'll see you one day. And when I got to the pros and I'm walking in the locker room and it's Bruce Smith, I'm like, I'm not sitting there saying I would never be Bruce Smith. 
I sat there and said, I'm going to suck every ounce of knowledge out of this experience. And everything has come to fruition, kind of staying to that mindset. So cool. no competition. So it's funny, two of the things we use in class that we'll close with are uh, things I learned from my grandfather. One is you have two ears and one mouth, so mm. listen twice more than you speak, and mm. the value of listening is incredibly important. And the second thing is, is he'd be sitting in a room, he'd look around and point at the four corners and say, never assume you're the smartest person in this room. Yeah. And it's all about learning, and that's why it seems like you've really had amazing teachers, mm. and now you're in that position to be the large-scale Yoda-like person to kind of pass that on. And one of the ways you're doing it is with the book, Never Shut Up by Mar Marcellus Wiley. Yeah. Uh, we love following you on Fox. Thank you for coming back. Thank you. Um, and, you know, oh, last thing, more importantly, Tom, how do people follow you? Where, where do you want people to follow yeah, you? Yeah, um, at Marcellus Wiley, uh, Twitter, mm -hmm. uh, Instagram, uh, all of the social media sites, and um, Marcelluswiley.com and Speak for yourself on Fox, uh, noon Pacific, noon to one thirty Pacific time. Uh, amazing ride, man. And I love your grandfather for what he said. None of us is as smart as all of us. Yep. I love that. Okay, That's cool. a real thing. Tom? Thank you. The other Tom talks a lot more, yeah. but I'm Tom a, Cerny I'm got us a, through this one. So, <laughs> I love it. Writer, you know? Oh, and nothing wrong, brother. Marcellus, once again, thank you for joining us. All right. Go Lions. So once again, this was the Columbia University Sports Podcast, The Cusp Show. I'm Joe Favorito with our pinch hitter Tom Cerny today for our regular co-host Tom Richardson. We'll see you down the line.